Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, and can be found on page 787 in your pew Bible. Before reading, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, we pray that each of us would open our hearts and minds to the truth that you would have us learn and understand. May your Holy Spirit speak to Pastor Mike as he shares your word this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Hear the word of God. <clears throat> Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, and all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we wear, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The word of the Lord. If anyone would like to have a paper copy of the sermon, Sylvia has it. She's passing through the church. You can get her attention as she passes by you. Dear friends of Jesus, if I asked you to name the overall theme of the passage we're studying this morning, what would you say? Probably most of you would say, trusting God. It's what I think I would have said a week ago, and in a way it's what I'd still say. It's not a wrong answer, but I've come to think that maybe it's not a complete answer. 
Jesus is certainly interested in teaching us to trust God better. But when we think about teaching this thing that Jesus does, his disciples called him the teacher, and a disciple is a learner. But when we think about teaching in our culture, we usually think about passing on some knowledge or some technique, and it's mainly about information. The teaching that Jesus does is about formation, forming the being that our doing comes from. The teaching in this passage aims at forming in us, in our very being, a greater capacity to trust God, forming a trusting heart, forming a trusting person. But why do we find it so hard to trust God? Is there something else I've been wondering that needs to be correctly formed in us so that we will be able to trust God? Is there something which, at least in that sense of, in that sense is foundational, in that sense comes before trust, is prior to trust? Is there another capacity or a faculty or an aspect of our being that needs to be properly formed before we will be able to trust God as fully as we ought to. And I think the answer the passage gives is yes, there is something that needs to be properly formed in our being before we can trust God. And that's a thing that I would call desire. If you look at verse 25, which is kind of a pivotal verse in the passage, you'll see a very important word, therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, and so on. And from that moment on in the passage, the main focus certainly is on trusting God. But the word therefore always connects the things that come after it to the things that come before it. What comes first in this passage? Where does it start? Let's take a closer look at that, because the first part of this passage is all about desire. That's where Jesus begins. He begins by acknowledging our human habit of desiring things, which usually also leads to acquiring things. We want, and we try to get what we want. We store up treasures. And here's what I find interesting. Jesus doesn't tell us that we need to stop wanting. Jesus doesn't say desiring is bad and acquiring is bad. He doesn't say, stop that storing up treasures. I think to be human is to desire. To be human is to store up treasures, to seek, to gather, to keep, to treasure things up. That's how we are created. We are desiring beings. It's our nature to do that, and it's not wrong. But what does Jesus teach us about our desiring. He sets before us two very different alternatives. This book is, uh, this passage has so many binaries in it, two stark opposite alternatives. Do not store up treasures on earth, but do store up treasures in heaven. Why? Well, for one thing, because earthly treasure is never secure. It can be ruined. It can be stolen. And often, all you do when you have it is worry about it. You know, the first time you park a new car in a parking lot, right? 
What if somebody opens their door into my new car? Other people want what you have or want to wreck what you have or you think they do. Wealth often brings anxi breeds anxiety, insecurity, suspicion, resentment. Treasure in heaven is always secure. If that's what you desire, and if that's what you acquire, then nothing and no one can take it from you. But here's another thing. According to Jesus, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Now you can't really tell for sure, grammatically, from that sentence, whether that means that A, if your heart is fixed on heaven, then you will work to store up treasure in heaven, or B, if you do have treasure in heaven, then that's where your heart will naturally go. In other words, does the heart go where the treasure is, or do we put the treasure and store up the treasure where our hearts already are? Well, I think both can be true. I, th I think both are true. Our hearts will be where we have invested, but we invest where our hearts are. But if you look at where Jesus goes next in the passage, I think it suggests that this critical faculty or function of the heart, this function of desiring, is foundational. And that's what really determines where we invest. So I'm leaning a little bit towards that side of the equation. Jesus shifts to a different metaphor, not the metaphor of the heart, which is the source of all our motivations, and sort of the center of our being, but the eye, which sets the direction of our desire. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, so what you desire in that sense determines your character. The eye is a particularly important metaphor in the teaching of Jesus. It always stands for our desire or our ambition, what we want and what we seek to possess. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where this passage is part of the Sermon on the Mount, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that if you look at another person with strong and wrong desire, epithumia in Greek, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And what does he say next? If your eye leads you astray, tear it out and throw it away because otherwise your whole body will end up in hell. Strong words, but they're the words of Jesus. It's how he thinks and it's how he teaches us to think and to be. In our passage today, Jesus says that if your eye is unhealthy, little, literally it's the word evil. Like when we say deliver us from evil in the Lord's Prayer, poneros, it's the same word. If your eye is evil, it will fill your whole body with darkness. But so, so de deformed desire will deform your whole self, will deform your whole being. It's, a, it's another set of radically different alternatives. Either our desiring shapes us and fills us with light or our desiring fills us with darkness. And here's the really tricky thing. Our desiring can be wrong even when it desires things that are not wrong in themselves. If we desire those things more than we desire God. And that happens way too easily. 
And it happens in part because we really do need some things. We really do need eat, to eat and to drink. We really do need clothing. We really do need money to function in this world, to survive in this world. To have no wealth at all is very problematic. We have real vulnerabilities and real needs, and those needs do have to be met. Even our Heavenly Father, especially our Heavenly Father, knows that. Jesus is trying to take us to a place where we set our desires on God, God's kingdom, on God's righteousness, and trust God to meet those needs which God knows we have. It won't be too much of a spoiler if I point out that the capstone saying, the one that comes at the end of this passage, is verse 43. Our translation says strive, but really in the Greek word it's seek. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The problem is that our needs can be sharp enough that they become the focus of our desire. They become the thing we primarily seek and even the things that we set our hearts on. We can actually become enslaved to the things that we set our hearts on. If we become enslaved to God, become slaves in the kingdom of God, that's not a problem. That's what we were created for, to serve God. But if we become enslaved to things, or as Jesus puts it, wealth, literally mammon in the Greek text, wealth, profit, gain, the storing up of earthly treasure, if we become enslaved to that, if that becomes what we're all about, then that's when we're in trouble. When we set our hearts on any form of mammon, we're essentially turning our needs into our idol, into our master. We're becoming slaves to something that's not at all good for us. And I think there are two ways this happens. Especially if you're poor, but not necessarily. Even if you're not poor, it's easy to become obsessed with your needs, your actual needs. And what you don't have is all you can think about, or, or what you have but you hold kind of tenuously and you're worried about it. That can become a misplaced and malformed desire. And that's a terrible temptation. That, that breeds anxiety, and some of us struggle a lot with that kind of anxiety. The other way our needs become our master is when we redefine our needs <clears throat> according to our increasingly refined tastes. We that's when we begin to confuse the things that we need with the things that we want. And we sort of idolize our wants as needs. We still worry a lot about food and drink and clothing, but on a much different level. Say, when was that coffee roasted? What kind of ice cream should I buy? Does this outfit really express who I am to the rest of the world? Hey, Madison friends, what's the best? And you can fill in the blank. That might represent a careful use of your resources. Or it may reflect a dangerous flirtation with mammon. Things like that may reveal that your desire is not set on the best possible object, the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. If those things that we need are in our life, 
That's not a problem. We need them. But if they're in our hearts, we're in trouble. I think there's good news in this passage. Jesus seems to be saying that desire is a faculty that gets good at what it gets used to doing. It can be trained. It can be trained to desire God. And the more you desire God, the better you get at desiring God. The more you find God satisfying, the more you will seek God. In other words, it really is true that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. But in many ways, getting our desiring right is the key to getting our trusting right. You can't serve God and wealth. You will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And, and those words represent a kind of progression. You just, you, you more and more hate the one and you more and more despise the other. It, it becomes a habit of being. And therefore, says Jesus, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't let meeting your needs be your constant preoccupation. Desire the life that God has in mind for you and trust God to, to, to meet your needs. And, and listen, I know that what I'm talking about really is the work of a lifetime, not something you, that you check off your to-do list. But this is a work that by God's grace you actually can get better at. I struggle with these things. I just finished reading, uh, again, the 2004 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Marilyn Robinson, Gilead. The whole novel is kind of a warning. It's, it's a long, long letter written by the 76-year-old Reverend John Ames to his seven-year-old son. And when I describe it that way, it doesn't sound that interesting, but it really is a fascinating book. John Ames is struggling with his poor health and his age. His heart is failing, and he can't even go up a flight of stairs. He, that might kill him. He knows. I mean, the whole reason for writing is he knows that he's not going to live to see his son grow up. And he's trying through this letter to create a way for his son to know him after his son grows up. And I was working, as I was working on this sermon, one passage from the novel kept coming back to me, and, and I've been reflecting on it as I've wrestled with my own anxieties and searched my own heart. And here's, here's John Ames writing to his son. I have not been writing to you for a day or two. I've passed some fairly difficult nights, discomfort, a little trouble breathing. I've decided that the two choices open to me are one, to torment myself, or two, to trust the Lord. There is no earthly solution to the problems that confront me, but I can add to my problems, as I believe I have done, by dwelling on them. So no more of that. The Yankees are playing the Red Sox today. This is providential, since it should be a decent game, and I don't care at all who wins. <laughs> in a real way, we always face those same two options in our anxieties. We can torment ourselves, 
or we can trust the Lord. And some of our problems have no earthly solution. We can't add a single hour to our lives by worrying. Jesus assures us of that. But we can torment ourselves and add to our problems. And getting out of that self-torment is probably not as simple as John Ames makes it seem. So no more of that. Right. It's not that easy to get there. But we can make that the place where we want to end up. We can desire that state of being. And we can pray that God's grace will take us to the point where most of the things that happen in this world are something like what the game between the Red Sox and the Yankees was to John Ames, something that he could truly enjoy, but that was ultimately of no great personal consequence to him. He had not invested his soul in that. We don't have to feel that way, that, that, that those things are of no consequence about the really important things in our lives, our relationship, our health, the people who depend on us. Our Heavenly Father knows our needs and the needs of others who depend on us, but sometimes those aren't even the things that worry us. And even if they are, it's the same alternative. We can torture ourselves or we can trust the Lord. And the more we desire God, the more we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the easier it will be to trust that God will meet our needs. No one can give you a method for that, for cultivating deep trust or for forming right desire. Jesus certainly doesn't offer a method. That doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. There are things that we can do. Most of the spiritual disciplines that Christians commonly practice are aimed at precisely this kind of formation. The things we're doing this morning are aimed at this kind of formation. Gathering for worship, meditating on God's word and God's works, sharing in the sacraments. There are also private personal disciplines that enhance this kind of formation. Prayer, daily reading of Scripture, taking a contemplative walk through the creation, taking the time to watch the birds and to consider the lilies, and using all of that to reflect, to meditate on God's being and God's doing. That's all helpful. That's all formative. But what Jesus is really trying to do is to capture our imagination and direct our desiring towards the one who can satisfy all our desires, even our deepest desires, and meet all our needs, even the ones we could never meet on our own. So let me give you something that might at least feed your imagination and to take with you into the coming week. Jesus tells us very clearly not to worry about food and drink and clothing. Those are the things he singles out. But let me ask you to think about the rich, sacramental, and hope-filled metaphor these things, food and drink and clothing, become in the Bible. Think about feasting in the kingdom of God. Think about such an intimacy with Jesus that he feeds you with his own flesh and his own blood. Hear the voice of God in Isaiah 55, for example, calling out, why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Come to me and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Or more simply, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
clothing. Think about God taking off the filthy rags that we're all clothed with and putting a new robe and a clean turban on your head, Zechariah 3. Think about the parable of the prodigal son who returns home from the pigsty, probably stinking and filthy, and the father says, put a ring on his finger. Bring out the best robe for my child to wear, and let's have a feast. Does any of that give you a sense of where your real treasure is? This is worth hearing one more time. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.